This episode includes discussions of graphic injuries and symptoms of eating disorders. Discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. The sound of combat boots rang out through the German countryside, announcing the arrival of American soldiers. They marched through the small village of Connorsreuth, climbing over the rubble that still littered the roads. Humble houses and local shops once lined the streets. Now, all that remained were piles of wreckage, a reminder of the final days of World War II. The church where villagers used to gather to pray for peace and safety was now unrecognizable. But the soldiers weren't there to see the ruins. They'd traveled thousands of miles to meet the woman who'd captivated the world with ecstatic visions and her alleged supernatural abilities. After the fall of Hitler and the Nazi party, Theresa Neumann emerged as a beacon of hope amidst the destruction. She became a unifying force for two nations that had just been mortal enemies. The American soldiers who'd helped defeat Hitler were eager to get a glimpse at her in action. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on modern stigmatist Theresa Neumann. Theresa claimed she had ecstatic visions, could speak ancient languages, and experience events from the past and she reportedly developed stigmata, wounds that mirrored the ones Jesus Christ suffered during his crucifixion. Last time, we followed Teresa on her journey from ordinary farm girl to Catholic mystic. As her star rose, the church sent experts to investigate her claims, and in 1933, she faced a new enemy, the Nazis. Today, we'll dig deeper into the criticism Teresa faced and unravel the mystery around stigmata. We'll see how she navigated the politics of World War II and take a look at her lasting legacy. Despite all the attention she received in life, one question still remains. Will she be sainted? We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Going for your first ever run around the park. 
Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Beginning in 1926, 27-year-old Teresa Neumann reportedly started having regular ecstatic visions and would sometimes develop injuries that corresponded with Jesus's crucifixion wounds, a.k.a. the stigmata. She also claimed she could heal the sick and access otherworldly knowledge. Most surprisingly, Teresa could apparently survive on her daily Eucharist or communion alone. She supposedly didn't eat anything else and hadn't for years. From the onset of her fame, Teresa had as many critics as supporters. A communist paper in Berlin accused her and the church of faking her alleged miracles for profit. In 1927, the debate about Teresa came across the desk of Dr. Fritz Gerlich, editor-in-chief of a daily Munich paper. He decided to investigate the situation for himself. Gerlich expected to go to Connorsreuth and find proof that Teresa was a fraud. Not exactly the most open-minded journalistic approach, but he thought of himself as a rational guy. He certainly didn't believe in the supernatural. He figured there was no way the stories could be true. But after several trips and many meetings with Teresa, Gerlich was surprised to find himself intrigued. The more he learned about Teresa and her family, the more charmed he became. We don't know the full details of how they spent their time together, but eventually he came to consider her a friend, which you'd think would be hard to do with someone you consider a fraud. But Gerlich apparently never found the smoking gun he was looking for. Instead of outing her to the world as a fraud, he became one of Teresa's most prominent supporters. He even converted to Catholicism. So clearly, Teresa was influential, and her claims drew a lot of attention from the church, like how she supposedly had knowledge and abilities that they'd spent centuries gatekeeping. Catholic leaders decided they needed to find out if Teresa was a friend or a foe. In July 1927, a local bishop launched an official investigation. The church wanted to have her observed in a hospital, but Teresa's dad refused. So they compromised and brought the exam to her home. Dr. Zeidel, a local physician and devout Catholic, led an intensive 14-day observational study. To balance his team out, the church also enlisted Dr. Avald, a professor of psychology who wasn't Catholic. Together with four nuns who were also trained nurses, they attended to Teresa 24 hours a day. They worked as pairs in 12-hour shifts, keeping extensive notes on everything she did. Dr. Zeidel sometimes dropped by Teresa's house unannounced, just to make sure everyone was following the plan. The team primarily focused on her stigmata and her extreme fasting, or inedia. Inedia is the purported ability to live without consuming food and, in some cases, water. 
Like ecstasy, it's not a concept that's exclusive to Catholic or Christian mystics. It's found in many other cultures. But the idea is, when someone achieves inedia, they've essentially become so enlightened they don't need to rely on food, water, or anything but a higher power. If that sounds impossible to you, well, you're not alone. Dr. Zeidel wanted to find out if Teresa was somehow sneaking food when no one was looking. Absolutely everything she did was measured, and we mean everything. The nuns took her vitals, weight, temperature, and pulse several times a day. She went to the bathroom in a bucket so the medics could test her stools and urine. They even measured how much water she used to brush her teeth. The experience was as invasive as it sounds, but through it all, Teresa maintained a more or less normal routine. Her family came and went as they pleased, and she continued to see thousands of visitors and attend masses daily. According to the nurses, Teresa continued her fast for the entire observation period. She didn't have a bite of food or a sip of water. But Dr. Zeidel couldn't personally monitor Teresa 24-7, so he couldn't guarantee she hadn't eaten or had anything to drink. Sure, the nuns were supposed to keep an eye on her at all times, but that's a difficult task, and everyone makes mistakes sometimes, even Holy Sisters. And if Teresa was faking her abilities, she wouldn't be alone. In 2020, a researcher named Dr. Marcus Mast reviewed several studies on anedia, including two that featured Teresa. He uncovered around 100 modern claims, most of whom identify as breatharians. Breatharianism is considered a movement, and one of its more prominent leaders is an Australian woman who goes by the name Jasmine. In 1996, she published a book about how she'd barely eaten anything in three years. In it, she outlined a 21-day process so others could do the same, and it garnered quite a bit of attention in spiritual and holistic health circles. Ever since, Jasmine has built something of a metaphysical empire. Her 42 books have been translated into 19 languages. She also sells online courses and meditations to help people attain pranic nourishment, as she calls it. But obviously, encouraging people to give up eating and drinking is a dangerous game, especially without a medical background or guidance. According to Dr. Mast, there have been at least four deaths linked to Jasmine's program. That's at least part of the reason he began evaluating the evidence and claims around Inedia. His goal wasn't to completely discredit the idea. Dr. Mast knew the complex relationship between nutrient intake and energy output is still being studied by the scientific community. And that has left the door open for some wild theories about what is and isn't necessary. Dr. Mast was selective about which Inedia studies he reviewed. Out of hundreds of potential cases, he focused on 38 where the subject had undergone at least one extended observation period, ideally in a controlled setting, like a hospital or clinic, not Teresa's house. Mast identified a number of issues with the methodology in the church's examination of Teresa. For example, she was apparently allowed to meet with people with no apparent safeguards. 
meaning anyone could have slipped her food at any time. Not only that, there's no record of Teresa ever being searched, so she could have been stashing snacks or entire meals in her clothing, which seems especially possible when you realize she gained weight during the investigation. Most of the studies Dr. Mast reviewed shared similar issues. Of the 38 people he investigated, he found 10 to be frauds. Of the remaining 28, Mast had doubts about their credibility as well. He just couldn't prove deception. Which is all to say, the jury is still out on if Enidia is real, but highly skeptical. That said, even if we ignore Teresa's alleged fasting, that's only one of her many claims. Her most inexplicable miracle may have been the stigmata. Coming up, a look at Teresa's strange wounds. I'm Darnell Ishmael, guest host of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, the special four-part miniseries from Solved Murders. I am honored to take you on a journey deep into the Old West to meet one of the greatest true crime heroes you may have never known existed, Bass Reeves. No Master But Duty reveals the true story of a formerly enslaved man who went on to become one of the most legendary U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West, bringing justice to over 3,000 criminals. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves' No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. The first documented case of stigmata happened in the 13th century, and it all started when, as a young adult, St. Francis of Assisi got sick. We don't know exactly what was wrong with him, but he reportedly dealt with gastritis and flu-like symptoms, and his illness stayed with him until the day he died. It's also apparently what inspired a major lifestyle change. After falling ill, he threw away all his possessions, started preaching, and began fasting regularly. He became more serious about his relationship with God and looked to Jesus for guidance, devoting his days to helping the sick and impoverished. Eventually, he was recognized for his work in the community and invited to join a military expedition to Egypt, where he preached to the Sultan. After returning to Italy, his illness took a turn for the worse. But even as his health declined, St. Francis continued his ascetic lifestyle. In 1224, after a 40-day fast, he hiked a mountain with some of his students. When he reached the summit, St. Francis allegedly saw an angel in front of him, and it was nailed to a cross. When the vision dissipated, St. Francis said he felt a wave of pain wash over him. He looked down and saw marks that resembled Jesus's crucifixion wounds. When authorities examined them, they agreed. They didn't appear to be normal injuries. There were fleshy growths in each spot that looked like the nails from the Passion of Christ. St. Francis died two years later and was officially canonized in 1228. 
After his death, more stories of stigmata cropped up. It's important to note, when discussing stigmata, we're not talking about inflicted wounds. They're injuries that are said to appear out of nowhere. Most reported cases are explicitly religious in nature. Usually, the people who develop these signs are Roman Catholic, but there are exceptions. People have reportedly developed the symptoms after trauma or when they've experienced intense empathy for another person who's in pain. The most famous story may be from New York psychoanalyst William Needles. He reported in Psychoanalyst Quarterly that a patient bled from his hands on three different occasions in 1943. Each incident happened after some kind of conflict which left the patient feeling guilt and shame. In another case, a young girl started bleeding from her back after watching her brother get beaten in the same spot. But these instances are few and far between. Historically, the stigmata have been tied to individuals who deeply identify with Jesus Christ and his suffering. Oftentimes, the injuries are said to be accompanied by visions or ecstasies, and the episodes usually happen on Fridays, the day Jesus was crucified, and during the Easter season. Some who've experienced the stigmata believe their personal struggles and financial hardships help them tap into Jesus' pain. Without material objects to distract them, they could focus all their energy on their faith. And the marks are seen as a blessing, not a curse. Physical evidence that their sins have been forgiven and the sufferer is connected to the divine. There have been over 500 reported cases of the stigmata, and the majority have been women. 300 of those were investigated and confirmed by the Catholic Church, and 62 went on to become saints. One of the most well-known female stigmatics was Marguerite Bays, a devout Catholic seamstress from rural Switzerland. In 1853, Marguerite was diagnosed with intestinal cancer, and her symptoms put her through near-constant agony. A year after her diagnosis, on the day of the Feast of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, Marguerite lay in bed praying. It was one of the holiest days of the year, a commemoration of the moment Mary was spared of original sin while in her mother's womb. Then, suddenly, the searing pain that Marguerite had experienced for so long stopped. Her cancers seemed to be cured. A few days later, burning red splotches showed up on her hands, feet, and chest. From that moment on, Marguerite experienced the Passion of Christ and the Stigmata annually on Good Friday at 3 p.m. on the dot, and they lasted for about an hour. Marguerite seemed like the perfect candidate for such a miracle. She was considered a model parishioner who respected clerical authority, was active in her congregation, and embodied the ideals of the church. More than a century after her death in 2019, she was canonized. The story of Teresa Neumann's stigmata closely resembles Marguerite's. After dealing with serious illness for a good portion of her life, she was suddenly healed while praying. Then, in 1926, she started periodically bleeding while having a vision of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
When the ecstasy started, blood apparently flowed from her wounds. But after some time, most of the markings resembled permanent scars. They allegedly only bled during Holy Week, the week before Easter. Now, this is all impressive, but that's assuming these accounts are real. Unfortunately, many stigmata claims throughout history have been proven false. The wounds were found to be self-inflicted or staged. But some evidence exists to support some instances of the phenomenon. There have been accounts that have reportedly occurred without premeditation or external stimuli. So, let's assume it's possible to spontaneously develop the same or similar injuries that Jesus Christ suffered during his crucifixion and ask another question. Are the wounds the result of a divine connection to God or something else entirely? In his 1927 study, Dr. Zeidel concluded Teresa's stigmata was a result of what he called hysteria. Now, hysteria has been a controversial diagnosis for a long time. Throughout history, it's been used as a catch-all for psychological disorders that involve paralysis, erratic behavior, and hallucinations. And it's been almost exclusively applied to women. As early as the 5th century, physicians like Hippocrates believed the very presence of a uterus meant women were more emotionally volatile than men. In ancient Greece, this misguided belief was used to justify policies that banned women from voting or participating in government. Sexist ideas like these have held well into the 21st century. Relatively speaking, we've only just started to address the many problematic assumptions that underlie this notion. It's a topic that could fill an entire episode, but today we'll focus on how it relates to stigmata. Remember, most people who experienced stigmata were women. So it isn't all that surprising that many of these individuals, like Teresa, were labeled as hysterical. Back when Dr. Zeidel conducted his study, Hysteria was also called conversion or dissociative disorder. According to an article in the peer-reviewed medical journal, The Neurologist, conversion disorders are, quote, closely related to conscious and unconscious fantasies. People with conversion disorders can struggle to move certain body parts. Others are completely paralyzed or can't taste or smell. These symptoms are considered unintentional and unfeigned, meaning you can't fake them. And that's part of what makes conversion disorders so difficult to diagnose. They seem like neurological diseases, except there's no known underlying cause, at least none that doctors can point to. Today, conversion disorders fall under the umbrella of dissociative disorders. People who suffer from dissociative disorders experience a disconnect between their inner and outer worlds, their thoughts and feelings, and their physical, observable existence. Maybe you felt like you've had an out-of-body experience where it feels like you're watching events unfold around you, but they're not actually happening to you. When Teresa experienced stigmata, she claimed she was transported to another moment in time one that was playing out entirely in her head. She was confined to her bed, her movements didn't feel like her own, and her senses shut down. She was completely detached from her mind and body. 
So maybe Teresa's stigmata was the result of a conversion disorder. But even if that's true, she had plenty of other inexplicable abilities that seemed to completely defy logic. While under Dr. Zeidel's observation, she apparently had visions and began speaking in an unknown Hebrew-like language. Dr. Zeidel called in a well-known professor to see if he could decode her words. Supposedly, he determined it was ancient Aramaic, the language used in Palestine during Jesus' lifetime. It's highly unlikely Teresa ever studied the language. At the time, hardly anyone in the world spoke it. It seemed legitimately miraculous, and it wasn't her only feat that confounded skeptics. In October 1927, Teresa took part in a study run by professors from a local Bavarian university. We don't have much information about their reasoning, but they apparently concluded her claims about fasting were fake. And when it came to the stigmata, they agreed with Dr. Zeidel. It was probably hysteria. But there was one incident they couldn't wrap their heads around. During one of her Friday ecstasies, she lost consciousness and went into her regular trance. When she relived the Passion of Christ, the professors shone a light in front of her eyes. According to them, it was bright enough to make someone temporarily blind or cause permanent damage to their retinas. They figured if Teresa was faking her visions, she'd have to close her eyes. The glare would be too uncomfortable. But to their surprise, Teresa didn't react. She just continued to stare into the light for a full minute. Now, our eyes are controlled by involuntary muscles. We can't consciously change the way our pupils expand or contract around light. It happens automatically. Hypothetically, Teresa's pupils should have at least contracted when the researchers put the light in front of her but they supposedly didn't change at all. So, in spite of all the scrutiny, some of Teresa's claims seemed legitimate. And as she baffled experts, she continued to gain popularity. But not everyone was happy about it. Coming up, Teresa goes head-to-head -head with the Catholic Church and the Nazis. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now, back to the story. 
In the late 1920s and early 30s, Theresa Neumann captivated Germany. In her small Bavarian village, a group called the Connorsreuth Circle rallied around her as a modern-day Christian hero. Members included nuns, religious scholars, aristocrats, Catholic doctors, and of course, her family. Fritz Gerlich, the journalist we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, even started his own newspaper based on one of Teresa's prophecies. His publication regularly challenged the church's involvement with politics. It also called out several local Bavarian officials. Another man named Friedrich Lama became an ardent supporter of Teresa. He'd been interested in Catholic mysticism for a while, but when he discovered Teresa, he was blown away by her abilities. The fact that the church refused to acknowledge her as one of the most important seers of the 20th century made him angry. He pointed to the direct connection she seemed to have with God as evidence that the clergy wasn't as powerful or important as they claimed to be. The faithful didn't need the Vatican or its leaders to build a relationship to the divine. There were workarounds. Naturally, this created some tension with the church. Teresa wanted nothing to do with Lama's incendiary claims and tried to distance herself from him. But she experienced blowback all the same. But as the papacy bided their time deciding how to deal with Teresa, the Nazi party rose to power. When Hitler took over in 1933, they zeroed in on so-called enemies of the state. Unsurprisingly, several members of the Connorsreuth Circle made the list. After all, Teresa and her family members opposed many Nazi policies. Her sister once helped an ethnically Jewish person who'd converted to Catholicism hide from the regime. Luckily, it seems they were never found out. The following year, the Night of the Long Knives rocked the country. Over several days, the secret police, known as the Gestapo, and Hitler's pseudo-military, the SS, murdered hundreds of people, including Dr. Fritz Gerlich, the newspaper editor-in-chief who befriended Teresa. After Gerlich's death, the Nazis continued to monitor his paper. Two of Gerlich's partners regularly received death threats, and the Gestapo searched both of their houses several times. Years later, in 1941, Friedrich Lama was killed. After being harassed by the secret police for years, he was hanged or strangled in prison. Two of Teresa's brothers were temporarily detained, as was her father, possibly for helping Catholics trying to flee to Switzerland. With so many of her followers in danger, Teresa and the Connorsreuth Circle became less openly anti-Nazi. They acted the part of loyal Germans. Teresa also never spoke out against the church. She approached the papacy and its leaders with respect, and some members, like Cardinal Michael Fallhaber of Munich, were amongst her most prominent supporters. Teresa consistently kept the church and the Nazi party at arm's length without condemning either. As a result, they never had a reason to excommunicate or arrest her. Even so, some church leaders couldn't shake the feeling that Teresa was trouble. In Connorsreuth, local bishop Michael Buchberger began limiting the number of visitors Teresa could take in her own home. 
He claimed she was disobedient to the church and insisted her abilities were more like those of an oracle and not a true mystic. One of her biggest critics was Catholic doctor Josef Deutsch. He argued she was an embarrassment to the medical field and warned that if she was ever exposed as a fraud, it would threaten the church's power. And with Hitler's party censoring the media, Teresa's name began to appear less in the press. Her fame and influence dwindled. And yet, Teresa didn't fade away into obscurity. People continued to travel to her village, hoping to get a glimpse of her Friday ecstasies. After a while, the Bavarian Bishops' Conference decided it was time to take another look at her claims. In 1937, they asked her to participate in another study, this time in a clinical setting. But once again, her father refused, saying he didn't want to put his daughter in such a hostile environment. Unsure what else to do, the church released a statement stating that they had nothing to do with Teresa and couldn't be held responsible for her actions. As for the Nazis, their philosophy was, as long as Teresa kept her mystical visions and stigmata away from the general public, she could carry on as usual. Despite all the resistance she faced, after the war ended, Teresa became more popular than ever before. She continued her miraculous healings, and crowds of pilgrims flocked to Connorsreuth to meet the woman they'd heard so much about. With her history of anti-Nazi, anti-communist beliefs, albeit beliefs she kept quiet, she attracted a new American audience. Between the 1940s and 50s, about 500,000 U.S. soldiers came to Connorsreuth to see Teresa during one of her Friday stigmatas. The outpouring of international support helped her become a symbol of U.S. and German cooperation at the beginning of the Cold War. And she used the momentum to gain an even bigger following, becoming a beacon of hope during a time of intense fear and paranoia. Then, in the late 1950s, she developed heart problems that sent her into cardiac arrest several times. She died in 1962 from a heart attack at the age of 64. 7,000 people showed up to her funeral, including a minister for Bavaria's Christian Social Union, one of the most important politicians in the region. And even in death, her supporters continued to express their devotion. By 2005, the church had received over 45,000 letters asking her to be named a saint. Later that year, her beatification process officially started. Like we mentioned last episode, it can take a long time to become a saint, sometimes several decades. The jury's still out on if Teresa will make the cut, but it's safe to assume she might meet some more resistance. Remember, the church is extremely strict when it comes to deciding what is and isn't a miracle. The fact that Teresa never let them study her in a hospital or clinic while she was alive doesn't bode well. Ultimately, it's up to the Vatican to determine whether the evidence in her favor is strong enough. In the meantime, we can confidently say Teresa Neumann has made her mark on the world.
Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on Teresa Neumann, amongst the many sources we used, we found Teresa Neumann, Mystic and Stigmatist by Adelbert Albert Vogel and Disruptive Potential, Teresa Neumann of Connorsreuth, National Socialism and Democracy by Michael E. O'Sullivan, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Megan Hannum and Natalie Pritsovsky, edited by Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Jay Cahew, produced by Aaron Larson, and sound designed by Carrie Murphy. Our hosts are Richard Rossner and me, Molly Brandenburg. I'm Darnell Ishmael. This February on Solved Murders, join me for a four-part miniseries on the incredible life and career of Bass Reeves, one of the preeminent U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West. In Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, discover how a man born into slavery took freedom by force and brought over 3,000 criminals to justice, including his own son. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify.